are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Job 23 today. We're actually going to be in chapters 23 and 24. So we have a lot to cover. Hopefully it will go by with relative ease and quickness. Some of you just got real nervous. But good thing we don't have anything going on. Who's got busy things happening, right? No, hopefully I'm going to cover two chapters in the same amount of time that I normally cover one. And for some of you, you're like, that's still too long. (laughs) All right, here we go. One of the blessings of being a pastor is the joy of watching people suffer. That might be an entirely crazy statement. It doesn't sound great, but I think you can understand what I mean. Of course, any of us as human beings watching people suffer, um, that, is, that is one of the hardest things about this life, is it not? Uh, some of you who have watched your children suffer or a particular loved one suffer, um, the pain uh, that you feel as somebody on the outside looking in is pretty deep, uh, even to the point where I'm, I'm sure if, you're, if you've been like me, you've even wished that you would have that, you would be able to take their suffering onto you. Better, better to relieve them of their suffering and really your burden of watching them suffer, you like almost rather embrace that yourself than watch them go through it. It can be very, very painful. That certainly happens as a pastor. That certainly is true. Um, I wouldn't wish some of your suffering on my worst enemy. Sometimes I feel that. I feel that burden, um, how, to, how to process your suffering, uh, how to help you process your own suffering. But again, also one of the joys of being a pastor is being able to watch people suffer and do it well. And I know even when I say do it well, that conjures up some sort of idealisticness of what suffering well looks like. But a lot of times what I really mean by that is not people who feel like they're pulling it off or pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or wiggling themselves out of suffering, but who are going through the full throes of suffering with an eye on the cross and the resurrection. Who are processing the gospel at a uniquely different level than people who aren't suffering in the church like they're doing it. People who at the end of the day suffer and somehow beyond reasons that I can't explain, somehow love Jesus more. It's a joy. It's a real treat. It's a real pleasure. It pushes me. It encourages me. It strengthens my heart. And I don't get it, okay? It's not something that I experience all the time. It's not something I think we as Christians experience all the time. But I think there are particular people that God has chosen out to suffer, and when they are doing it well to the glory of God, and when they see Jesus and his cross, and they make sense of his resurrection, and put all the blue chips on that reality, uh, there's a kind of joy and a peace that they have, and it kind of even reflects at least the beginning of Job's 
life and his testimony at the beginning. God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And somehow that really encourages me, even as I wonder, how are you doing that? It can be really encouraging. But it's not that easy, is it? In fact, I look at those moments and I think, man, that's pretty miraculous. I think that's on the, on the fringes of the miraculous or on the fringes of the work of the divine. Right? That's not something I can, as a pastor, put into the hearts of people. I can't make that happen. I wish I could. I can't sprinkle enough holy water on people to make them feel good in their suffering. I wish I could. Uh, the only thing that happens is when God, in his divine grace, brings people low, and in his timing and in his great grace, brings people up. Or as Paul would say, that though their outer person is wasting away, their inner man is being renewed day by day. That is an incredible pleasure to see. But really challenging. Not easy. And suffice it to say, I think the more I talk with just general Christians out there and the way that I tend to interact with suffering myself is I tend to get really frustrated, really confused, really exacerbated by uh, what's going on and things in my heart get really tense and tight and I feel a lot of pressure and I feel like I want to get out of it. I want to feel like I can escape it. And I have a hard time making sense of why, God, are you making this happen to me? And oftentimes that's my response, and I kind of end up fighting with God in particular ways. And that's not to say at all that that's not a faith-filled response. I do think it is a part of our lamenting understanding is that kind of Godward complaint toward him. And I think that has its own faith-filled space. I'm not here to say whether or not that's all right or wrong. Some of it's just within the own, our own intentions of the heart. But what I can say is that suffering oftentimes brings a heavy dose of confusion in our Christian life and experience, does it not? I think oftentimes what I can say about suffering is that we have a hard time making sense of what God is doing because we have a hard time understanding exactly who God is. This is no different than Job. Job still had a lot of questions, more than answers, it seems, about who God is. We're going to see in just a little bit, Job's going to start to tease out some of his own thinking or some of his own theology about what he knows to be true about God. And we're going to see he's not always correct. Okay, uh, He gets it mostly right, but there are a couple things that we're like, eh, not sure that was all great, not sure that was the greatest motivation. Okay, Certainly his friends, we have a great uh, a great deal to pick on with them, but it is confusing. We have a hard time understanding what God is doing because we have a hard time understanding who God is. On this side of the cross and resurrection, though, as believers stuck in this part of salvation history, I think it's really important for us to be able to process what God is doing based upon the realities of what he has already done. Can I say it this way? God has, at this point in salvation history, already made very clear who he is on the basis of his son. Jesus made it very clear. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? If you believe in me, you also believe in him because he is the one who sent me. There's a direct connection between Jesus, God, the, the son of God, and the Father, God, God eternal, because they're both God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, all, in, all, all are God, all are one. 
So we have to understand at this point in salvation history, we have to begin to understand what God is doing on the basis of what God is what God has done. Uh, one of the songs that I have begun to love recently uh, is a song called uh, "You Have Already Won," and it talks about the Christian life being a battle. And in one of the lines, it says, "I don't know what you're doing, but I do know what you've done." And that is a great response for us as we try to make sense of why God uses suffering, pain, and even our own sin, our own failures, our own fear, our own guilt and shame in a way that helps us to understand more about who he is. Many of you know that Martin Luther is one of my personal heroes of the faith, I think because Number one, he had a clarity of the gospel that is uh, pronounced for his day specifically, but also really for our day. I think every Christian should read Martin Luther just to gain a clarity on the gospel, uh, and his language helps you with that. Um, But also, I think one of the things that helps me is that he did suffer. He suffered greatly, persecution and other kinds of physical sufferings. So it helps me understand and know that this person wasn't just talking about the gospel in a think tank or in a vacuum uh, or in some space that was unaffected by the human experience. This is a person who deeply suffered and was persecuted and for most of his ministerial career was on the run. He talked about, though, this idea of trying to understand God in his hiddenness. He says, he says most Christians try to approach God in a way that is unapproachable. They try to know God in a way that God never actually wanted to be known. Martin Luther called this the hiddenness of God. It is the only way you can truly know God is the God who is actually preached. And of course, we know that he gets this from Paul's theology where Paul says, I know nothing except Christ crucified. I preach to you nothing except Jesus on a cross. I've preached to you no other God than the God who died and resurrected for your sins. So Martin Luther, and actually hammering out some of these pun, I just made a pun. Uh, Martin Luther hammering out his theology to help gain clarity in uh, in this matter related to the hiddenness of God and how most Catholic Christians on his day were trying to get to God in a way that was shadowed or veiled or confused. He wrote uh, this thing called the Heidelberg Disputations, and I just want to read a couple of them because I think they're helpful for understanding our sermon in Job tonight. He says this, the person who believes that he can obtain grace by doing what is in him adds sin to sin and and that he becomes doubly guilty. It is certain that a man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Here's the really important one that I wanted us to settle on. Uh, They're kind of sequential. They build on each other a little bit here. And hang with me. I'll explain it in a little bit. But he says this, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. Let me explain that. You are not a true theologian. You don't understand who God is if you are trying to see the hidden things of God, the things about God that we cannot see, by virtue of the things that we do see here here below. So, for instance, what can we see down here below? Namely, our sin, namely, our suffering, 
our fears, our shame, our guilt, all the stuff that we can see, the injustice of this world. We're trying to make sense of all the things that we can see and sense down here below. How are we going to make sense of this? Well, we know we need to know who God is. Cool. So let's find out who God is. Let's take a look at all the injustice of this world and try to make sense of it. Martin Luther's saying you can't do that. You can't get an understanding of God's righteousness by trying to solve what's going on down here. You can't get an understanding of God's holiness by trying to figure out the unholiness going on down here. It's not possible. You have to look for God in his revealedness. You have to look to, uh, to God for you have to look for God, seek God in a way that he actually has clarified himself. So he says this, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. You are a proper theologian. You know God well. You are scratching at the surface of who God is, or as Job would say, you're beginning to see the fringes of God's ways if you are able to see the visible and manifest things that God is doing here through the lens of suffering and the cross. Because that is how God has revealed himself. If I can say it in this way, when God revealed himself to Moses in his glory, in his holiness, in his justice, in his radiant splendor, Moses couldn't see him. God was hidden. But we can all see the cross. What Luther is saying here, here is like we can't make sense of what's going on in this world if our filter is trying to see God in his unapproachableness. Now, later he would actually tie that to this idea of Christian lawfulness or Christian uh, kind of uh, obedient kind of theology where we are trying to climb up to God, right? Because we're trying to ascend to those places where only God is. We're trying to ascend to the mountain of God's holiness, Psalm 24. We're trying to climb up to a higher understanding of God's righteousness or his justice up here. So we're on our way. We have to move upward in order to get there. And what Luther is helping us to understand is it's not about the Christian's ability to move upward towards God. It's about the Christian understanding humbly that God in his kindness and grace has revealed himself by coming down here on the cross for us to see. And once we see this, we see everything we need to know about the heart of God. It makes sense of everything. So Luther would clarify by saying, He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. The love of God does not find, but rather creates that which is pleasing to it. And this is what we begin to see happening in the mind of Job. This gets a little tricky in verse in chapters 23 through 24 because what we begin to see is a little bit of a shift in Job's mind and heart. He has listened to his friends over and over and over again, and all of a sudden we're starting to get a little bit of creep, a little bit of what I just call law creep into the realities of God's mercy. Job is starting to dip his finger into the desire to want to find out the hiddenness of God. Job has always had this question of why, but he has always come to the end of it and says, I believe and I trust in God's mercy. And now we're going to start to see Job shifting ever so slightly, getting a little bit familiar with his friend's language. So there's a couple things I want to just make sure we as believers, as we set our hearts on these passages, I want to make sure we are understanding things through the light of the cross. 
So I have basically two points tonight, basically a point for each chapter. The first thing I want us to see in chapter 23, and you're just getting both right now, I guess. You're just getting both. There it is on the screen. The presence of darkness does not equal judgment. If you're going to try to make sense of the things you can see, the things you can feel right here and now, you're going to try to make sense of the hidden things of God that have actually in some weird way made themselves manifest here, and you're just trying to make sense of it down below, you have to understand that the presence of darkness does not equal judgment. Let's go ahead and read chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. Then Job answered Eliphaz and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. It's amazing to me that all along, Job has never lamented about his stuff. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. You will never find Job lamenting about all of his stuff. That that dreadful day when he lost his entire family, he lost his entire wealth, he lost his entire prestige, he lost his leadership, he lost everything that was meaningful in his life in one day. And not once has Job ever said, God, I want that stuff back. The angst of Job's heart has always been this sense of justification before God. This question of, God, are you mad at me? God, is it something I have done that has caused me to be at distance with you? God, why are you so far away? What is the answer for this judgment that I face? And the reality is, if you can start to go backwards in your mind, back to the opening stages of Job, you start to get a little bit of a a picture of why, at least to me, this chapter 23 starts to make sense, and even Job's language starts to make sense. I mean, he started out so righteous, didn't he? He started out so clean. The first chapter of Job is a beautiful statement about a wonderful man who has raised a great family, who has led his family in godliness. I mean, he has done everything right. He's a good dude. He's a good father. He's a leader in society. He has done all of these things perfectly. And then even as the suffering came into his life, he was suffering so piously. He was doing so well. His spirit was so almost... Almost grossly as you read the – if you're a human, you just kind of feel like, really? That's what you said? I would have been way more mad about that situation. Job seems to be actually fairly upbeat and pot not upbeat, but you, you know what I'm saying. He responds so well. I mean you could write a book on how to suffer well, and you could just take the first couple chapters of Job and be like, well, that's how to do it. He pretty much crushed it. And all along the way, he's always kept his integrity, saying that God will set me right. My vindication won't be because what I do, it'll be because of what God has said. But now he's starting to buy into some of the language of his friends. If you go back to Job 5, you'll remember Eliphaz saying to Job, the reason you're suffering is because you haven't sought God. 
You haven't sought after God. You haven't climbed the holy mountain of God. Job, if you would just start that work, start trekking up the mountain of God's holiness, you could get back on track. Remember, he says this in Job 5. As for me, Job, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause who does great things, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. And now we finally get in chapter 23 and verse 3, Job says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I think I'm going to go try to seek after God. I think I'm going to go try to find that holy mountain and begin to climb my way back and find out this answer. That I might go to his seat, that I would lay out my case before him. Have you ever thought about what would happen if you got pulled over innocently? You were doing all the right things. I mean, some of you have had this experience. I have not. I've always got pulled over justly. It's always been, yeah, I get it, officer, I get it. But I've always thought, like, what would I appeal to? What part of my heart would I appeal to, to this man or this woman who's, who's pulled me over? I, mean, I would just, like, try to appeal to just my, like, my sweetness. I would try to appeal to just my, like, I, like I don't know, officer. I don't know. I just really wasn't paying attention. I was just not, not a care in the world. I would just try to appeal to the humanity of it. Job's trying to say, I'm going to appeal to my righteousness. I'm going to appeal to God based on the fact that I've done nothing wrong. Literally, God, what, what are you going to say? What are you going to pin on me? What are you going to pin on me that you can't pin on a million other people doing other things? I would lay out my case before him. In verse 5, he then says something which I think is really Really cautious. We've got to be very careful with what uh, the kind of language Job uses in verse 5. I would know that he would answer me. And this is a different kind of language that we've heard from Job before. I would know that God would answer me. He would have to talk back. Max Lucado on this passage, some of you know him, he's a famous pastor. He says, Job talks about God like he knows God more than God knows God. And this is kind of the beginning of this talking to God or talking about God in a way that he's almost going to speak for God. My friends, it's a very dangerous position to be in. It's a weighty position to be in. Sometimes God does call us to speak for him but it better be concrete truth. In other words, it better be the way in which God has revealed himself very clearly. When we start meddling in ways where God is hidden to the natural human heart, my friends, we need to be okay checking out. He says in verse 6, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would condescend. And this is a little helpful to understand that Job still does have a heart for understanding God's mercy. And he knows this to be true, and he's not wrong. Because of the finished work of Christ, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And verse 7 couldn't be a more truthful statement in all of Scripture. There, at the throne of God's grace, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Anybody who goes before the throne of God and has a perfect uprightness could argue with God and there would be zero problems. And my friends, that is absolutely true. But I think in the back of mind, uh, back of Job's mind, he starts to backpedal a little bit from this position and says, well, maybe I'm not as upright as I think. Maybe I'm not so in the clear to just walk up to God on my own. If we want to 
caps encapsulate verses one through seven, you could say that the first thing Job says is, I know, I know, I know. God would have to do this for me. But now as we look in verses eight through 17, he begins to kind of shift and maybe backpedal a little bit. And he says, all right, all right, all right. Maybe I don't know, but he knows. He knows. Verse eight, behold, I go forward, but he is not there. I go backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. And I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Verse 8 and 9 is a little tricky. Almost, uh, it's, it's actually kind of cool. I, I, again, I, I don't really feel like in any way I'm a Hebrew expert in any way. Uh, but from what I can tell, there's a little bit of even like an east, north, south, west kind of perspective here. Uh, if, if you're thinking about it, forward for him in, in the Hebrew mind is the eastern way. Going east is forward. He's not there. Then you go backwards. That would be west. He doesn't perceive him. Then on the left hand, that would be to the north where God is working. We can see God at work, uh, but we don't behold him there. But we also then turn to the south, to the right hand, and we don't see him there. You have this clear perspective of like when I'm going forward in life, nothing. When I'm going backward in life, nothing. When I think about God in heaven, I don't understand what he's doing there, where God is working, where his angels are, where his kingdom already rules and reigns. I don't understand that there. I don't perceive him. But also as I look towards what's happening down in hell, the realities of a lack of judgment, sin, ruling and reigning, I don't understand what's happening there. Everywhere I look, I don't understand God. But then again, he says, but I think maybe I can shift the focus onto God a little bit more and say, well, he knows. He knows. Okay, cool. He knows about me, and he knows that if you were to prove me by fire, he would see what's really there, and it's all gold, baby. It's all there. It's all gold. And I want to be, I, I be up front and say, yes, there's a real sense to which Job, yeah, he's a righteous dude. We don't get any picture from the biblical account that he is qualified as or, or said to be this unrighteous man. He's as righteous as righteous can get. So from this perspective, you do have to tip the cap to him and be like, man, he's going hard. He's going hard in with his own righteousness, with, with his own standard, with his own uh, ability to get it right. He's going hard in with it. And if there's anybody who has like the best crack at it, it's probably Job. So we got to tip our caps to him and say, all right, if anyone's going to try, it's him. He's also speaking this from the place of the sufferer, so I want to give a lot of space there too. Comparatively, this man who has actually sought God's face, who has sought to lead his family well, to raise his kids in the faith as best as he knows how, to do what's right, to follow after God's commands, the things that he has left in order to follow God, I want to honor that sacrifice and be like, that's, that's some cool stuff, that's some great leadership, some great faith. Praise the Lord for his faith. Praise the Lord for the righteousness that we can see at work in Job's life. But I do think this backpedaling helps us to understand a couple things. Justification, that is rightness with God, forever, past and present, has always had nothing to do with your own performance. 
It's never had anything to do with your ability to actually exhibit the righteousness that is given to us or that's needed. Also, this backpedaling helps us understand that when we seek for God in his hiddenness, there will always be confusion. And here's what I mean by that. Last time we talked about Eliphaz, and one of the things we played true or false with, if you're tracking with me from, from last week, we played true or false. One of the things that we said is, because God is holy, therefore he is lawfully exact. True or false? And we kind of were like, well, kind of true, but it doesn't present the whole story. God is lawfully exact holistically in the sense that there has never been anything outside of God's perfect standard that has been done that won't be settled in all in 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 eternity future right so there's a sense of justice god will bring all things into completion he's lawfully exact in in the sense of like not one sin will have escaped the the qualification of god's justice for that sin right there won't be one sin out there that's just like lost Uh, god forgot about that thing to make it right He, he will make it all right okay But also I think what we're saying is a sense of falseness because it doesn't present the final picture of God's grace. Yes, God is lawfully exact, but God doesn't end with a word about his lawful standard or his exactness. In fact, we know, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, failing underneath that line, Christ died for us, right? So there is grace that supersedes the lawful requirement. There's grace in the place of the demand. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So in this sense, when we seek for God by virtue of lawful exactness, in other words, if we're going to try to climb the mountain of God's holiness by virtue of our own doing, there will always be confusion. You will constantly live your life as to God, what are you doing? Are, are, did you bring this suffering in because I, because I failed? Are you bringing this suffering in because when I was 12, I made a really bad decision? Are you bringing in this suffering or this pain? Or can I not shake this sin because as an 18-year-old, you meant for me to make this decision, but I didn't? I mean, it's, it's constantly confusing in our lives, and we never know what God is saying when we're constantly trying to ascend that way. When we're using God's lawful exactness as our sense for, is God happy with me? Are we okay, God? There will always be confusion. And this is why in verses 13 through 17, Job throws up his hands and I think he just says, well, then who knows? He starts off, I know. He's like, well, maybe not, but he knows. And then he throws up his hands and is like, well, actually, who knows? I don't know. Verse 13. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will, complete, he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am, dre- I am in dread of him. God has, my, God has made my heart faint, and the Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. This is a little bit, if I can step on some toes. This is a little bit like a lot of folks who probably would label themselves as way the way we would label ourselves, more reformed-ish, whatever that means these days, who have a high view of God's sovereignty, 
when we're trying to make, make sense of God's suffering, that we just tend to flush everything through the back door of God's sovereignty in a way that's unhelpful. Why? Because we can't make sense of it. And so we kind of like Job are like, well, I mean, gosh, I guess God's just in control. I guess he's just got his hands on it, but we don't know what that means. We don't know what his intentions are for his control. We don't qualify his sovereignty in a way that is or sounds like or is presented in any sort of good news. Like we have any like decent hope to offer people. We just say like, well, God's in control. I mean, how many times have we said this to our kid? They stub their toe. God's in control. He knew that was going to happen. I mean, does that, that doesn't help anybody. I mean, that's like, that's not soothing. That's not good news. It's just a rec- That's like Job. Well, who knows? I don't know why that happened. God's in control of it, though. He surely made it happen. He owes you big time. I don't know. It filled the blank with whatever stupid comment you want to say next. It's not helpful. And that's not to say that God isn't sovereign. Of course God is sovereign. But the question still exists. What is God doing in his sovereignty? Why has he sovereignly allowed you to suffer? Why has he sovereignly allowed this sin to keep rearing its ugly head? Why can't he just take the desire straight out of you? He has sovereignly allowed this to be. However you want to do the, the, the sovereignty game, right? Everyone to play that. Again, Job does offer some hope. Yet, on verse 17, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. In other words, he's saying, I know I have darkness. I see it. And yet he hears me still. Now, how could he say that? What kind of clarity would he have to be able to say that? He's given us several drops of gospel hope all along the way, but here he is banking on, but God still is merciful. I know God is merciful. Yes, he's just. Yes, he's sovereign, but I know he is also merciful. There will be mercy somehow and in some way. It helps us to understand that the presence of darkness, and and let this be clarity for you, let this be clarity for you, just because Darkness is present in your life and around you just because you see it, just because darkness is going on in this world. It doesn't always equal your judgment. Okay? Doesn't always mean God is mad at you. Doesn't mean that God is after you. Doesn't mean that God's trying to get you. Or it doesn't mean that he has shut off the vows of his mercy. Okay? Job is happily letting us know at this moment, I have darkness but I know at some point there is still mercy out there. Then in chapter 24, he begins to shift and he begins to say a lack of judgment doesn't equal light. A lack of judgment doesn't equal light. And he's going to flip the page on his, uh, his, his understanding of justice for him, right? He feels un, unjust. But now he's going to go to God and say, God, what are you doing regarding all these evil people out there? So the first thing he talks about are in, in regards to those who have darkness, those dark people out there, he talks about their actions and then their victims. And this is uh, verses 1 through 12. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who, who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. 
Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie, night, uh, they lie all night naked without clothing, and they have no covering in the cold. They have wet with the rain of the mountain. They are wet with the rains of the mountain and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast, and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing, hungry. They carry the sheaves among the olive rows of the wicked. They make oil. They tread the wine press, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. Ever seen this? Isn't it hard to read the newspaper these days without a sense? No one reads newspaper, but you know what I mean. Your Twitter feed or whatever you're watching, whatever TV show or news channel you're watching. And yet God charges nobody with wrongdoing. It's hard, isn't it? sickening at times to see it's it's heavy in your heart and even now we begin to see people's actions who exist in darkness and we even see the victims uh, maybe some of you even at points feel like victims of stupid things talking about someone who was just involved in a hit and run accident here before before church how how godless how dark how empty and he goes on to start sharing about their specific kinds of darkness and even some of their identities and how these people are identified. Verse 13, there are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with, the, with its ways. They're not associated. They don't even understand the light. They don't get it. And they do not stay in the path of the light. The murderer rises before it is light that they may kill the poor and the needy. And in the night, he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, no one will see me. And he veils his face. And in the dark, they dig through houses. By day, they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them. For they are friends with terrors of deep darkness. This reminds me of Psalm 139, where Jesus, in a very contrasting way, says, For me, the darkness is like light. And here Job is confessing that for these people, it's like light is like darkness. What they run and what they do and what they love and what they delight in and what they feed on and how they exist we see, we see it as all darkness, but to them, that's the light. And what we see as the light, they have turned it into darkness. They want nothing to do with it. That's when they hide. And then he begins to point out their prosperity. In verse 18, Job is going to target back to his friends and talk about how his friends normally talk about the wicked. And he says, doesn't seem so to me. Verse 18, you say... Swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns towards their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. Job's like, that's what you say. He starts off that verse 18 with with you say. Now in verses 21 through 25, he's going to talk about what Job says, what Job has experienced. His friends say, man, bad people get bad things and get eaten up. 
But verse 21, Job's going to say, let me tell you what I say. They wrong the barren childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the, of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted for a little while and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like the others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show me that there is nothing in what I say? Anybody, anybody want to raise your hand and try to prove me wrong? That that doesn't happen in this earth? Anyone want to argue with me? Just as I thought. Great. It's tricky, isn't it? But in all of this, is there not still the mercy of Jesus? This is true. It's not untrue. He's right. He's not seeing it wrong. He's being very clear, very transparent. Things we see every day, Job is just helping to highlight. His own suffering helps tell the story of how we suffer here below. It stinks, doesn't it? It hurts. It almost feels angering when people hit our cars and run off for no reason. When things happen, when we get that diagnosis and we were never, what were we doing to deserve that? What happened, what happened there? When we can't figure out and sort out our own sin problem. God, what, what in the world? Why does it seem so easy for other people to figure out life? Why are they not bogged down in their conscience by sin like I am? And we can tend to think that just because there is no judgment being experienced in this world, and again, I want to say that's just our experience. There is judgment going on in this world. Okay? But in our own experience, it feels like there's no judgment. It seems like because of that, there is no light. And my friend, I want to say that the confusion here is because a lot of times, just like Job and now, now Job, just like Job's friends, and now just like Job, as Job is starting to bend into some of the teachings of his friends, he's starting to get this kind of God, we demand that you be lawfully exact. We demand that what we see must happen, start happening. And my friend, what that is, is this attempt, this try to reach into the throne of God to try to find things that are hidden that we can try to explain from our own human experience that God never intended for us to see. A presentation of God that he never intended for us to be presented with. It's almost like we're seeing a part of God that's totally clouded behind his smiling face in the cross. Because if, if you saw the cross, you would see both this sweet harmony of God's judgment and his light. You would begin to see the reality that Jesus is making all things new through the mechanism of Jesus' cross where all of our sins have been brought to a Savior who would bury them on his own shoulders, bury them upon his own soul, and God would take his wrath and he would pour it out on one who didn't deserve anything at all because of any wrongdoing that he has done, and that he would set people like you and me free from the burdens of our sin and our own shame. And he would allow us to continue to exist and then even in his kindness, and yes, certainly in his sovereignty, to experience the realities of the cross 
in our lives so that we might remember that it is not about us being able to climb up to God. It is about God graciously stooping down to us. And in no way has his judgment been, been missed. But we also see his light shining forth in our life in a way like we've never seen. And in this way, I think Luther is exactly right. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without work believes much in Christ. He deserves to be called a true theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. Now, eventually, Job's going to get to hear from God. God's going to set Job right. But where is he, where is he going to go? Where, what's he going to try to do with Job? The first thing he has to do is kind of knock him down a couple rungs and say, you don't know nothing. And then how would God speak to Job? He would say, look at my cross. This is, this is what I'm doing all of this for. Hang on. Hang on to my mercy. Don't forget my mercy. You want me to be exact? Don't, for, don't forget. Yes, you're a great dude. We get it. You're a great guy. Don't forget that if I'm going to be exact, you wouldn't last that long. But also, don't forget that because of Jesus, I'm no longer keeping score. It's all mercy. Don't forget that. So everything I'm trying to do in your life right now is to help knock you down from your scorekeeping. Trying to help you understand it truly is flattened. My relationship with you has been finished. It's been settled. I am no longer an angry judge. I am a kind father treating you in my grace. And I might have things that I'm doing in a million ways that you'll never understand. I'll tell you about it later on. But at this point in time, trust me. And if you do lose trust of me, look at what I've done. See my cross. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us to understand that just because we are suffering with a present kind of darkness, it doesn't mean that you are angry with us in a way that's judging us for our sin, for a lack of ability to climb up to you or find our way to you. Father, you have stooped down to us. You've paid for every sin. You've come our way. You have demonstrated immense and unconditional grace so that we might know you. Father, for the things that we can't make sense of down here below, Father, help us to understand that just because there are, uh, there's a lack of judgment from what we can see, a lack of exactness that we want to see and desire to see, that that doesn't mean that there's light. Father, there is light at the cross. There's an understanding of who you are found in our Savior, Jesus, who came to us and says, I am the light of the world. Father, I pray that Christ would shine upon us tonight that we would have an understanding of your gospel in a clearer way that frees us from the burden of having to perform and try to get right with you and fight for rightness with you. And also that is freeing from the confusion of uh, trying to make sense of all that you're doing. Father, may we see everything through the lens of your cross and know that that's what you want us to hear. We pray these things through Christ. Amen.
Redeem this one. 